This is episode 35 with Clyde Rathbone. G'day legends and welcome to Your Life of Impact, where we connect with world-class athletes and coaches, health experts and enthusiasts, inspiring entrepreneurs and community leaders, all to teach you how to tap into your inner excellence. I'm your host, Brett Robbo, and I'm extremely grateful you're joining us today on your impactful journey. This is another episode with a sporting legend that we don't really talk much about their sporting career because he has so much to offer from his other life experiences. So I'll just give you a quick wrap up of some of his sporting career. Clyde Rathbone is a former Australian rugby union player turned mental health advocate, writer and entrepreneur. He was born in South Africa where he played all of his junior years of rugby before signing with the ACT Brumbies in Australia at the age of 22. Clyde's career lasted only seven seasons in Australia before he was forced to retire due to injuries, but three years after retiring, he made a comeback for one last season, again with the Brumbies. He also played for the Australian Wallabies national team for three years and was qualified to play by virtue of having an Australian-born paternal grandmother. In this episode, you will learn how the development of a positive social media platform is harnessing the power of human stories and creating a cyclone of gratitude. You will learn about depression in sport from a lived experience, how studying and practicing mindfulness and meditation has helped to save Clyde's life. You'll learn the difference between being fit and being healthy and this relationship to optimal living and how you can have the opportunity to enhance any relationship in your life and also get a kick out of it yourself by joining the Karma community. Over the years, Clyde has been very open about every aspect of his life and all his mental health issues. In this episode, we don't dive fully into all of his triggers, so if you're interested to learn more about that, then follow the links in the show notes on the website to read more about Clyde on his Karma platform. The powerful thing with this episode, however, is Clyde expressing what has worked for him to take the darkest times of his life and make these experiences his light to the world in regards to using his adversity to his advantage, aligning with his core values and accepting that the worst situation in his life is actually now serving as his purpose. When I talk about and teach people about finding their purpose, a core element to succeeding on this path is not to ask what is, is not to ask, sorry, what it is you want for yourself. Your purpose is not about what you want, it's more about what others need, what the world needs and then understanding what aligns with you and how you can use your skills, your experiences, and for many, your adversities to be of service and enjoy this process. 
These are some key things we unpack when I work to help you identify your purpose. And as always, if this is something you need help shining some light on, whether that's identifying your purpose or learning how to shift your mindset away from being a victim of your adversity and using it to help you live more fully, then reach out to me on brett at lifeintentional.com.au or jump onto yourlifeofimpact.com forward slash coaching and you can email me directly from there. Yes, this has been a longer intro than usual, but one more thing. Be sure to listen to the outro after my chat with Clyde because I've spoken to him since the recording of this episode and something great has evolved from the gift that I gave to Clyde for being on the show and I detail that in the outro. Now, I mentioned Karma before, which is a social network that is all about meaningful human connection. Clyde is one of the founders and we kick off this chat with him telling us what their core purpose of the community is. The best way to describe Karma is to focus on what it's trying to achieve. We've built a social network that is all about meaningful human connection and you know, what that means is that it's, it's a place to think about meditate on the positive impact that someone else has had in your life and to write put those thoughts down in long form writing in the form of a letter and then to tell that person about that impact to kind of try and reach out and say, hey, you know, I appreciate you and the experiences we've had and for these reasons and and because of you, my life is better. And it's, I guess it's a different form of uh, use of social media technology. Like so much of it today is short form, soundbite and a snapshot quality to it. Karma is trying to flip that on its head and and create a place that's, that's much more long form. And thoughtful. So you're encouraging the the story type approach between people to enhance those relationships. Exactly. You know, there's I mean, there's there's a lot of angles. One is just to give someone an authentic gift is really hard these days. You know, everyone has got what they need, our basic needs for. If you live in a you know developed Western country, you know, we're we're more privileged than any people in history essentially and it's we're in the habit of sending people things they don't really need where what people really want is that genuine connection and I think we struggle in many ways to establish that because modern life is so busy it's the next email it's the next meeting you've got to get to it's the next social media update whatever it's it's rare to kind of clear the space mentally and physically to take the time to just kind of meditate on a person, you know, and I think when you strip everything away, you know, what we, what we all really care about in life are people. It's the people and it's the relationships that make our life better that we most cherish. And we need to do, I think most of us need to do a better job of a recognizing that reminding ourselves of that more regularly and then taking the second step, which is to actually tell people the things that we often leave unsaid before it's too late in some cases. You know, like I've been in, at funerals and listened to eulogies and even with people that I've been close to and actually learned things about them that I didn't know. 
at that funeral. And that to me, every time I have that experience, I think, you know, how powerful would it have been for that person to have heard these stories and these words when they were still around? And so that's a big part of what we're trying to do, you know, is to create really thoughtful social media. And I guess to try and make the internet a bit more of a human place where, you know, you're, you're interacting with people, you can see who they are. When you go on calm and you read the content, it inspires you, it kind of reminds you how many good people there are in the world doing incredible things. And we're building this community kind of one letter at a time. It's been a, a very gratifying, exciting journey. Why do you think, just from your personal perspective, that we live a life and struggle to communicate our feelings to people in this way like you said when you're at funerals and you think that people would have loved to have heard other people express their heartfelt emotions and their true thoughts and really connect with them why do you personally think that we as humans struggle to convey that sometimes in our lives yeah it's it's a extremely it's interesting question i think the a, a part of it just comes down to culture you know what is it that we typically think of when we think about the traditional notions of male-female relationships or male-to-male relationships, female-female relationships. What is it that comes to mind? And often our behaviors are just learned through those constructs that exist within culture. So for an example, men are traditionally, the, the kind of, I guess the archetypal man is this really strong, stiff upper lip, don't show too much emotion, get the job done, you know, archetype. And really, it, there's lots of different variations of what it means to be a man that exists on that spectrum. So that's just thinking about it from the perspective of a man. I think a lot of men struggle to articulate themselves emotionally for a range of different reasons. And also, I think it's difficult to do, there seems to be an extra layer of awkwardness to express yourself face-to-face. You know, one thing I've noticed, you know, I have this battle myself. You know, I've written nearly 100 letters on Karma now. And I've noticed that it's easier for me to write things that I, I know I would struggle saying. And I know that were the person sitting across the table from me, it would be an extremely difficult conversation to have. But I can take the time to kind of reflect on the impact that person's made on me and put my thoughts into words and writing it in a way that kind of reduces that barrier. So... I don't know all the reasons why we struggle so much, and I think it's particularly a thing in Western culture. Part of the reason, I think, is just the volume of stuff that gets thrown at us at a daily basis. As I said before, I think modern life is just incredibly distracting. To actually refocus on what what really matters takes work. You know, it actually has to be a practice, much like we think about a physical practice. I think the, the practice of gratitude, and it seems to be something that's true of a lot of things in life, that the, the best stuff doesn't come easy. And, and I think gratitude falls squarely into that category and that it's, it's easy to do in little spurts here and there. We can all get motivated and we can all do it. But to actually make it something that you do consistently, even on a daily basis, is, I think it's something you really have to work at. I know for me it's something I've had to work at, but the benefits are there to be had if you can find a way to, to be that committed. 
I've been following the Karma community for a while and reading some letters here and there, but I became an experienced user just recently as a whole team of us wrote stories about a Batir colleague that was leaving. And I had a ball writing this story on the Karma <laughs> platform because it actually allows us to add pictures and videos. So I made my story in that wow. way. And it was it was cool. To be honest, I possibly got more out of it than Dom who we were writing the letters for because <laughs> I was proud yeah. of it like a piece of art when it was complete and then to receive Dom's heartfelt gratitude later was just abundantly yeah. awesome. Yeah, exactly. I mean, this is the thing is that, well, there's two things to say about that. One is that, you know, as owners of the, the sites, you know, of Karma, we didn't want to be too prescriptive about what a Karma letter should be, you know, all we really want is it to be honest and open and kind. But, you know, we've had a wide spectrum of letters. Some are you know, embedded video and images and you know, they're not that word heavy, but they're relatively long form. And others are, you know, essays. And some of them are hilarious. Like you get some, you know, kind of in jokes between people. You can just kind of you can read between the lines and some of them are incredibly open and heartfelt and just profound and, and some of them are a mix of all those things. So to see it take shape, you know, karma when it was still just an abstract concept was, was something that we had a lot of assumptions about, but until it, it actually existed out in the real world and people were interacting with it and using it, you don't know what form it was going to take. And it's been incredibly rewarding for us to see the different ways it's been embraced by different communities. So the event that you're referring to was for a employee at Batia who had been instrumental to getting a lot of their programs off the ground and it just you know, kind of been a heart and soul of the organization for a long time and, and was moving on um, to a new role at a different organization. And Everyone just came together, which which is powerful. This whole community effect. Everyone came together to give him a really meaningful send off, and, and and just via letters, everyone in the organisation just wrote him a letter, trying to express what he had meant to them. And you know, we say it over and over again that it it is the best gift you can give someone. You know, most of us don't need any more things, but to actually hear that we're adding value to other people is incredibly powerful. And I think it's powerful for a few reasons. One is that for whatever reason, most of us have a tendency for that internal narrator to be quite critical. I mean, we're very good at picking ourselves apart and focusing on critical elements and, and being negative, and that can lead to a whole bunch of issues and it can spiral. And one of the recurring themes we heard, and we still hear from letter recipients, is that they can't believe they're reading about themselves. So people will reach out to us and say, you know, this is just the best thing I've ever received and it blew me away to receive it as a surprise, but I can't believe I'm actually reading about myself. And it's, you know, to let people see themselves through the lens of the value they've had, added to other people is, is, is huge. And, and then the other element of it is, is what you touched on, which is that from the the author's perspective, it's a powerful experience. You know, it's it's kind of obvious that someone getting a stack of letters on a, a farewell or birthday or wedding is going to be great, a great experience for them. But from the writer's perspective, that's something that has come through really strongly, that it's there's something special about just thinking about how someone's helped you or a favorite memory or a funny story or 
the shared experience and putting that down in words and especially putting it down in the form of a story, it reminds the author how fortunate they really are. And it's, it's a way just to focus our attention again on, on what actually matters in life. And all, all these, these powerful benefits that, that Karma is producing, is just exciting to roll it out and invite more people onto the platform. It sounds like a gratitude cyclone for you because you're grateful to have the platform to provide those opportunities for the giver and for the receiver. It's awesome. And I know that this platform was created from your heartfelt experiences, which we'll move into shortly. But before we do, Clyde, I want to say that I'm extremely grateful for your time with us and welcome. Welcome to your life of impact. Oh, thanks, Brett. It's, it's a real pleasure to be here, and, and you know, I feel privileged to be part of what you're doing as well. It's uh, I've listened to a lot of the podcasts, and it's important work you're doing. You know, when you, when you wake up in the morning and you can't wait to get stuck in, that your 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 work is aligned with your values, and I can just tell that from what you're doing. That's what's happening, and I feel lucky to be in a similar situation. Oh, brilliant! Thank you, mate. Now we were reconnected through Batir that we were just speaking about and we tried to catch up while I was still in Australia but it didn't quite work out because I ended up crashing my car and spent my last day (laughs) in the country sorting that out so here we are chatting over Skype but I actually used to treat you when I was coming into the Brumbies as a contract massage therapist when you made your comeback in 2013-14 too. Yeah it's funny how these things work and what a small community it is you know professional sport and it's exciting to see different people go on and, and embrace new things and new challenges. And, and who could have predicted that you'd be doing what you are now and, and I'd be doing what I am with Karma and that we'd have the opportunity to reconnect this way. So, you know, it's, it's, just, it's another reminder of what a, a mystery life is and, and that's sometimes the best part about it. Absolutely. Now, speaking of the Brumbies, you played for them for eight years and three tests for the Australian Wallabies team, but it was a split career due to a forced retirement for you at the ripe old age of 27 due to injuries. That must have been tough to be forced into retirement. Oh, extremely difficult, you know, especially because, you know, I don't think at that stage of my life I was equipped to deal with that kind of adversity. And, and also because the retirement that I had at a young age, was totally not on, on my terms and had been coming for a long time. Just a, a very difficult thing to deal with as a 27-year-old who had a lot of ambitions in the sport and hadn't quite worked out how to separate my identity from my profession. And for all those reasons, that transition period, that initial retirement was was extremely difficult for me. And I know it's, it's sort of in the last couple of years come to light that this is quite a common experience for a lot of athletes that, that moving from your professional sporting career into kind of in, in scare quotes the real world can be really difficult i think there's a lot of reasons for that and, and i know that my first retirement was was just a grueling experience from from start to finish and it made me in hindsight really appreciate the opportunity to go back and play again for, for two more seasons at the brumbies and just see the whole experience from a different perspective well that's what i was actually going to say that even tougher than the forced retirement due to injuries would have been your dark experiences once you did retire. Yeah, exactly. Now, I, to give you some context, I remember going in to see the head coach at the time, and this was in 2009, and he, he said essentially that there's no contract on the table for you in 2010. And the only emotion that I felt was just pure relief. 
and, and the reason for that was that it had been years of struggling to just do my job, essentially. I started to develop a pretty serious knee injury way back in 2005, and then that injury just got progressively worse. A couple of surgeries, I ended up going from a starting Wallabies player to a bench player for the Wallabies to a starting Brumbies player to a bench player for the Brumbies and ultimately into that conversation with the with the coach. And, you know, it was at the point where oh, if I didn't take a mix of painkillers and sleeping tablets, I couldn't get through a single night's sleep without waking up with my knee just throbbing and just in constant pain because of the injury. And I think I just became incredibly disillusioned with the sport. You know, it stopped being this thing that it was when I was younger, which is just an absolute passion and something that you, you genuinely loved. And it just became this paycheck. And by the time I left, I remember thinking, I just want to put this whole experience behind me and move on with the next phase of my life. But I'd, I committed to playing for a local club team in Canberra. And the last thing I want to do was play any rugby. But I, I told them I was going to play and I thought, well, It'll be five or so games, and then I'll hang up the boots and ride off into the sunset, and, and that'll be the end of rugby, and I can kind of move beyond this whole experience, which had become incredibly negative for me. And in the final game that club season, I ended up having a pretty severe facial injury, which required some reconstructive surgery. So I remember coming home from the hospital. I was 27, and and just thinking – how had things got to this point because I'd started out as you know a really bright prospect with huge potential in the sport in my mind's eye I envisaged playing 100 tests and being one of the best players in the world and had all these plans and they were just completely upended by the injury and my inability to recover from it so I went home from the hospital with you know my set of painkillers and sleeping tablets and my days became increasingly reclusive. So I stopped catching up with mates, I stopped doing the things that I enjoyed doing and essentially just became virtually housebound. And it's the point where I was almost never leaving the room. So I, I kind of tell the story about how my youngest brother was living with me at the time and he was selling these Fredo Frog chocolates at school for charity. I would wake up in the morning, I'd take 20 bucks out of my wallet, go into his room, throw the money on his desk, grab a box of Fredo Frog chocolates and head back into my room. And over the course of the day, just whittle away the hours watching YouTube videos and just murdering this box of Fredo Frog chocolates. And unsurprisingly, my weight went from a playing weight of about 95 kilos. I went up to 112. My sleep was terrible. My diet was horrible. I wasn't exercising at all. And I, and I got to the point where I just realized that if I didn't take action, that there was a good chance I could end up as a statistic. And we all know, you know, how dire the stats around men's mental illness and the suicide rate in Australia are. And you know, a lot of people have said, like, what was the key moment that sort of woke you up? And I don't know that there was any one single thing. I just felt like I started to develop some clarity about the direction I was heading in. And, and that was scary. That really frightened me into some action. And the action that I took was fairly simple. I had a conversation with someone close to me that I trusted about my experience, which I'd never done. You know, for years and years and years, I just kind of had the attitude that you just push on and you just push through. And I'd, I'd never verbalized or articulated what I was going through. That was significant. And then it, it was a whole series of very basic lifestyle things that I started to address. So, you know, I never want to forget 
that going back and playing rugby for two more years started with something as simple as a walk around the block, which then turned into a very slow jog around the block, which turned into a run around the lake. Then I got back into the gym. I started paying attention to my diet. I started looking after my sleep. I started reconnecting with friends and kind of embracing positive social interactions and getting out and kind of living life. And to the point where I fully recovered and decided that I wanted to write about my experience. And the reason for writing about what I went through was really just from the perspective of asking myself what would have helped me to have read when I was really struggling. What could I have read that would have helped my recovery or made things easier? And so that was kind of that blog post that I wrote about my experience was my path back to playing again because I, I published this, you know, it wasn't a tremendously well thought out piece of writing. I just kind of smashed it out on the internet one day and posted it on Facebook and the reaction to that was huge. You know, I got over 4,000 emails and messages from people from all over the world. And the central message from all these people was that my story reflected their story, that they had struggled themselves or someone in their family or close in a circle of friends had had a similar experience. And it really brought home to me that mental illness can affect anyone, the wrong mix of circumstances. I'd always applied the same stigma or attitude to mental illness that I now try and speak out against. You know, I'd I'd always thought about mental illness or depression as something that happens to other people. Now, it never even crossed my mind that I could be affected by it because in my mind, you know, I was a winner and depression was something for losers. I mean, it's almost embarrassing to say that now, but that's that was my attitude to it for a, a long time. And it was a part of the reason why I wasn't able to, first of all, acknowledge it in myself and then take action to overcome it. So so I wrote this blog and, and put it out. Sorry, you have a question? I was just going to say that you, you mentioned that it did hit you hard after retirement. You sort of briefly said that you pushed it away for years. So did you experience that mental illness and your depression during your playing days? I don't think I was ever depressed whilst I was playing until right near the end of, you know, that first retirement. I think, I think you know, the, the fact that there's so much to do and just kind of staying on the treadmill of and inside the bubble of professional sport, you know, having something to do constantly, I think was part of how I was treating myself. So it was the next physio appointment, the next sponsorship thing, the next rehab session, whatever it was, it was always something to kind of occupy my attention. But there was definitely elements of it throughout the entire period that I was playing and injured as much as I was. And it, it really only came about when I was playing, when I was injured. And, and I had a lot of injuries throughout my career. And the, those elements of you know, depression and I guess just feeling a lack of control was certainly there, but I don't think it ever manifested as full-blown diagnosed depression. I think it was something that was in the background, but never far from the surface for large parts of my career. And then when I retired, I no longer had the, I guess, two things, the support structure that you have within sport and just the distraction of having that next thing on your on your plate that you have to dedicate time and effort to. And all of a sudden, you're being alone with your own thoughts and, and the whole thing just sort of bore down on me and I couldn't distract myself or escape and had to deal with it. And have you come to understand more about it over the years of where your depression may have stemmed from? Was there triggers from your childhood or early footy days or anything like that? Yeah, I mean, it's it's, it's one of those 
interesting things and that depression I've learned is, is a real catch-all term that describes a lot of different mental states and that the experience that one person has may have a lot of overlap with another but that it's naive to think that depression is one experience and that it's the same for every person and I think that's something I've learned that you know for me it was there's a whole range of factors that I can point to things in my childhood and I can point to the experience within rugby and I can point to the transition and the way it happened out of rugby as triggers but I was always more interested once I became curious about what was going on in how to recover and how to live you know a fulfilled meaningful life and much less curious about what the reasons were I wanted to understand the reasons in as much as they helped develop a strategy to mitigate any depression in the future but I, I to me it didn't it didn't matter as much as just becoming well and the whole process of becoming well again was for me a very customized tailored thing for me you know i don't pretend to have the solution to this it's such a complex issue i only know what i know works for me and the things that work for me are very simple things that i know i need to be consistent with and it's it's very reassuring it gives you a tremendous peace of mind knowing that there's a framework that you can go to that you know works. And for me, that framework is essentially lifestyle things. It's things like exercising consistently, uh, paying attention to my quality of sleep, having you know, really strong connections with other people that I care about. It's you know, embracing new learning and experiences. It's getting into nature regularly. It's getting sun. It's kind of looking at how our genes are meant to express themselves and trying to develop a lifestyle that mimics that as closely as possible. And all of this stuff is extremely simple, but where the complexity lies is keeping all those balls in the air at the same time. And, you know, for, for me, I, I know what I need to do now to, to kind of maximize my potential and to have a great life. And it's, it's it didn't, I didn't work that out overnight. It took some, some work and and a lot of effort and that's the, the key message that I try and convey to people whenever I'm asked to speak about this is that I, I really encourage people to view their whole framework as an exper as an experiment. So you know, I think a lot of anxiety comes from not knowing what to do or how to enact change and I think the, the message is you don't need to know all the answers to get started and you need to work out what works for you and this this applies to people that are 100% healthy as much as it does to people who are struggling with some sort of mental illness. We all want to work out how to live the best life possible. And to do that, we have to be curious about what that life could look like. And we need to be willing to embrace new ideas and take some chances and, and just play with things and have fun with it. And it's, it's amazing where that can take you. I love your outlook there with talking about what works for you might not work for others but what you found that worked for you really well even in the earlier processes when you reached out for help is that you concentrated then on okay so what is going to help me move forward so it sounds like you went back and you unpacked some things that were possible triggers like you said from your early childhood days from your early footy days but you didn't spend time beating yourself up about it you obviously learned from them and then didn't allow that to create too much confusion and you, you 
build on it from there. But I'm really mm. interested to know what you've learned about your thought processes from this experience with depression because you alluded to it just before, the letter that you wrote in February 2012 and I read it uh, to, to Julian Smith where you talk about the negative thoughts. Yeah, I mean, uh, it's the whole process of understanding the mindfulness and meditation and becoming more aware of, I guess, the automaticity of thought and that none of us, we don't construct our thoughts. Our thoughts kind of appear in consciousness seemingly out of the blue and we don't always understand or often understand what underpins whatever thought next comes careering into your awareness but we have a tendency to become extremely attached to those thoughts and in a way that I think is really the basis for all the majority if not all of human suffering is identifying with thought versus just observing thought and recognizing that how we react to whatever thoughts we have is on some level a, a real choice. And that you don't just have to be kind of strapped to the rocket ship of whatever the next thought is. And it, again, much like writing letters of gratitude on karma is a real practice, I think the ability to become an observer of your thoughts and to separate your conscious state and your experience from your thoughts is requires work and it's 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 kind of a task that's never never really ends but can be extremely interesting i mean the first time you have a, a breakthrough moment with meditation where you're no longer just automatically uh, connected with the next thought that pops into your head and you can start to observe it kind of like a you know a leaf on a stream that, that, that enters, it has a transition phase and then it exits and you can create the distance between that thought and your emotional state is so powerful and it's, it's something that I'd encourage everyone to explore, you know, that your life, and again, this is cliche to some extent, is much more a result, the quality of your life is much more a result of your attitude to what happens than it is a result of what actually happens. And that attitude, to develop the right attitude, is really just a process of observing the thoughts that are generated, that, that, you, that you didn't author. Like no one constructed their own brain. No one designed the thoughts that they're having. But we all have the ability to disconnect and disengage from those thoughts in a way that presents more control to us than we typically have without that process. Absolutely. And that's what I bring into my, I do a lot of coaching with people around mindset and understanding the thought dynamics, because as you alluded to that thoughts just come at us all day long. Our mind is like a, a chatterbox and just throws thousands of thoughts at us all the time. But as humans, we actually have the power to either attach to those thoughts and let them take us either down a spiral or we have the ability to 
to just acknowledge that they're there but not attach to them if they're unhelpful thoughts. And I think it's vitally important and one of the first things that I begin to teach people, and like you said, it's a process to understand, but the power of the thoughts is that that's what actually leads to the way that we feel and obviously what we do in life, the way that we act or the way that we hide, it all stems from how we feel, which which comes from that thought dynamic. So I know that you sought psychology help and and you just mentioned their meditation and I've heard you speak about mindfulness, but you also said that it wasn't until you understood the science-based evidence behind these practices of mindfulness and meditation that created your belief in it. Well, I think, yeah, I mean, first thing to say about that is that the actual process, because in talking about this for people who've never had an experience of meditation, or it, I think it's you don't have to force yourself into anything. You don't need to have a thought and then think, oh, shit, now I've got to actually, I've got to take some sort of action. I think the trick is, and this is kind of the, the center of the bullseye to some extent, is just the, the process of observing thought totally changes the nature of the effect that that thought has on you. I mean, when people go into meditative practices, really what they're trying to do is create the space for that observation to take place. And I'm no expert on meditation, but that seems to be a core part of it. And the other thing to say about what you said was that you know I did go and have a few sessions with a psychologist and I actually went when I was well again I really should have gone much earlier and it was as much just out of my own curiosity for what that process was like as anything else and I ended up gaining much more from it than I had anticipated given that I was already recovered and one of the things that came out of those sessions I went to five sessions in total one of the things that came out of it was just an insight into what the practitioner called cognitive behavioral therapy, which is in, in many ways just mindfulness repackaged for psychologists. And that really sparked an interest. And then the other thing you touched on was, you know, what convinced me to actually explore it further was recognizing that this wasn't just kind of hippie woo-woo, <laughs> that there's actually strong evidence for this. You know, I'm naturally skeptical and sometimes that can be a double-edged sword because you can become so skeptical that you don't you're not open enough to ideas and and for me mindfulness definitely early on fell into this category it was kind of a a viewed kind of buddhist philosophy and eastern philosophy and mindfulness and all these kinds of ideas as as totally in conflict with a rational scientific understanding of the world and and the big moment for me of, of realization was that I'd always assumed things like Buddhist philosophy and were were in conflict with our ideas of science and reason. And I was surprised to learn that actually there's a tremendous amount of overlap between Buddhist philosophy and mindfulness and the latest neuroscience research. And that was exciting to me because it just meant that there was much more to learn and it was it was counterintuitive i hadn't expected to discover that and it, it made me want to know more and you know i've since spent more time unpacking that and and, and it goes back to kind of a, a side point which is that just viewing all of this as a as a process and a journey and that you can learn things that can radically transform your life that in itself is incredibly exciting 
that that a, a single book can make a tremendous difference to the lens through which you see the world. I mean, it's hard to imagine anything more exciting than that. Like we're always on the verge of some cognitive upgrade that can radically shift experience for the better. And it, it makes you hungry for more knowledge and more learning and more experimentation. Absolutely. And I always say that the most powerful thing on the planet is the human mind. So why not create the best version because we all have one and part a big part of that is like you said starting with whether it's a book or an audio book or a podcast that can help you upgrade that cognitive behavior so Clyde is there any favorite books or resources of yours that the listeners can go to to help them discover some of these areas like what worked for you or any favorites from you there's a couple of books that are really interesting one is by a neuroscientist and author named Sam Harris, and it's called Waking Up. It's basically his attempt to, I guess, support the a, a secular view of spirituality, that it is possible to have a spiritual life without believing anything superstitious. And I think that's something that a lot of rationalists and, and scientists and might miss out on, and that there actually is uh, the capacity to have a very rich spiritual life that is totally devoid of any woo-woo or nonsense and or kind of the babble that we often see associated with the word spiritual. So it's a kind of Sam Harris's attempt to scrub that word clean, and it's, it's a great book. I would recommend it highly. The other book is one called Stumbling on Happiness, and that's by Daniel Gilbert. And it just looks at a lot of the the research into happiness. And, you know, what I took out of that book was just how counterintuitive a lot of the findings are. You know, if you look at how society tells us to live and you look at what the research says about what makes us happy, there's often, there's not a good alignment between those two things. And that book is just a really interesting read and in unpacking that. And the final book, which is kind of in a similar vein, is called The Emotional Life of Your Brain. And I forget who the author was, but if you Google that, you'll find it. And it also looks at some of the more recent research onto meditation and its effects on a whole range of things like stress and ability to concentrate and um, self-reported feelings of happiness and well-being and super interesting. So those are three that I think you know you would do well to pick up. Brilliant. And I'll link all these books up in the show notes for everyone listening because I'm proud that this podcast, I don't want it to just be a resource that people listen to. I want it to also be a resource where they can find out information like this and then they can go down the rabbit hole of the personal and professional development and learn from books that are recommended, other podcasts that are recommended and audio books. And I must admit, mate, I haven't actually listened to or read any of those books that you mentioned, but I will download Sam Harris Waking Up because I've heard a lot about that one. And the emotional life of the brain sounds very interesting, but I must admit I don't read as much these days. I, I listen to audio books all the time, the same way that I've told everyone I'm addicted to podcasts and listening to podcasts and learning from them. I do the same with the audio books. And actually, that's why I've teamed up with Audible. So if any, anyone listening wants to download one of those books that Clyde has just spoken about or any book, then you can go and download one for free at using the link yourlifeofimpactbook.com. If you haven't already got an Audible account, you can get one book for free there. 
I agree totally around meditation and mindfulness and I was first exposed to them through podcasts actually and that took me down the, the rabbit hole of exploring more and actually I feel the same about gratitude and we had Dr. Kerry Howes on episode 11 talking about the science and research behind gratitude which I loved sharing with my community because as you know deeply well and what karma is all about it's not just throwing out an expression and hoping for the best it's thinking feeling and acting in a state of gratitude that creates the powerful outcome and back to meditation and mindfulness it's not just a matter of sitting in silence and blocking out thoughts there's processes and actions that create powerful responses. I mean, one of the awesome things about the time we live in now is that they've learned more about the human brain in the past 20 years than ever before. And they do these tests where they put helmets on people and monitor their brainwaves while they're meditating and doing mindfulness practices. And they see that neuroplasticity is actually occurring, which Mm. means, you know, it's actually creating permanent positive change in the brain. I, I love this stuff and that's why I bring it into my online coaching programs because it's actually proven powerful changes at a physiological level. Exactly. Uh, I think it's, it's tremendously exciting to see where this goes next. You know, I think that we're in this phase now where things like gratitude and mindfulness have for a long time been kind of fringe concepts that are, and they're now becoming genuinely mainstream and that just means that more people are likely to benefit from those practices and and it's nice to know that you know because we live in this hyper-connected world that more and more people are going to be open to these ideas and become aware of the benefits and we're able to start their own journeys integrating things like gratitude things like mindfulness and you know we we, i think we have a tendency to view the world as this scary place that's getting worse in many ways. But I'm tremendously optimistic about humanity in general. There's a tremendous amount of problems that need to be solved. But we're in a unique situation in which, for the first time in human history, you know, post the internet, that we can mobilize large bodies of people to focus on shared problems because we're, we're hyper-connected. And that hyper-connection it brings a lot of negatives to the forefront. You know, I think you look at how much time and attention people spend online now. I know that I won't be lying on my deathbed wishing I'd just clicked one more like on Facebook or just written one more tweet. But I I do want to focus my time and attention online in a way that aligns with my values. So it's about not throwing the baby out with the bathwater. And, and karma is really about that. It's about focusing on our attention in a way that aligns with our values and also recognizing that we shouldn't throw the baby out with the bathwater. You know, there's, there's, there seems to be a general understanding now that this generation is the first one that's had to deal with the intrusion of social media in our lives. And I read a, a pretty shocking stat recently that the average person will now spend five years of their life on social media. And so the question that we ask ourselves at Karma is, is is that time well spent? And if it's not, if those five years per person, if those years are not well spent, then how do we create a social network technology that is time well spent? And and that's a huge part of what underpins growing Karma and, and 
bring it to more people. Which is brilliant because it's reality. It's evolution is social media. Evolution is people spending time online. So we can't try and fight that battle. And I like that you don't just point out the negativities because I agree that social media can actually be used purposefully, but people often get caught in the unpurposeful aspects of it. So to for you to actually provide a full social media type platform where it is all about that positive human connection, I think it's brilliant. Yeah, thanks, Britton. It's you know, it's it's we're fighting a battle that is really bucking the trend. You know, we're there's a whole generation of people now that are are programmed for instant gratification, uh, 140 characters, take a photo, put it on Instagram and and as you alluded to, there's actually obvious benefits to that. You know, I can view this from both perspectives, that, that this hyperconnectivity is powerful. We can share ideas, we can connect, we can develop new relationships, we can gain new knowledge. The downside really stems from the fact that these platforms are built with an explicit objective in mind. And that objective is improving the share price of the respective companies that exist as social media our powerhouses, your Twitters, your Facebook, your Instagrams. And the problem with the business model of those platforms is that they're all optimized for advertising. So what that means is that their share price directly correlates with the value they can create for advertisers. And the value that they can create for advertisers is directly related to the amount of time an individual spends staring at their screen. So what that means then is that you've got a incredibly powerful kind of suite of engineers who are all trying to work out what it is they can feed you through your respective network that is going to keep you sticking around. So that's why when you get a notification, say, for instance, on Facebook that says something like your friend just tagged you in a photo, that notification goes right to the core of our curiosity. So it's like, well, what is the, what's the photo? And so you click on that notification. Then when you take into the platform, you don't just see that photo. You also see some post or content that's designed to hook you and keep you around for longer. So it might be some outrageous political post that you care deeply about, or it might be some cat video that humanity can't resist. And all of these things are really just gaming your time and attention. That's part of what we're doing with Karma is making sure that our values – as a platform don't collide with the values of our users, of our authors and our letter recipients. But that's presented its own set of problems in that how do you create a workable business model? And that's what we're waiting through now. And we are very fortunate as a company to have investors who just want karma to exist because it's a force for good. And you know, we, we're a for-profit company, but we're not chasing profit in the short term. We've got time now to really solve these problems in, a, in an ethical way. And I, and I just think Karma is going to be a quality, not a quantity platform. It's not the kind of thing you'll be checking 10 times a day. It might be the kind of thing where you write one letter a week or two letters a month. Um, but the time you spend there is some of the highest quality time you'll ever spend on the internet. 
And how do you see the site being sustainable in that way? What kind of long-term sponsorship or back-end sort of support do you see that will really align with your values? Because I love that you speak from that place and that's what it's all about. It's all, it is about operating authentically. But like you said, the society that we live in, that's and for thinking of the companies needing to make money from platforms and from exposing themselves, how do you guys see visual that? Well, there's a couple of ways that we're experimenting with at the moment. So one of them is through hard copy books. So we had one of our users receive, I think she got 43 letters on her birthday and the letters came from her students, from her friends and her family. And we ran a short experiment where we reached out to all the letter writers and said, hey guys, we want to create a, a really high quality hard copy book. So it's great that these letters are preserved digitally on Karma, and Liz can refer to them anytime she wants. But there's something special about a hard copy book that can be passed down through the family so that you know one day Liz's great-grandkids will be able to read the letters that she received and she wrote. And the cool thing about that model is that it's a crowdsourced gift. So like the event that you were involved with for Batir, rather than one person having to write the check for this book, everyone who writes a letter can just contribute a few dollars. And if you get 43 letter writers at each person paying five or 10 bucks or less, you know, we haven't worked out these details, well, all of a sudden you've dispersed the, the kind of the financial load on any one person. And that gift is so powerful. I mean, that we produced our first book recently and that's one avenue that we'll definitely explore. The other one that is exciting for us is partnering up with the right sorts of organizations doing really meaningful work in the world. You know, it's insane that there are all these platforms where you can write about, you know, your favorite restaurant or your favorite hotel, but there's no dedicated place online to write about Doctors Without Borders or Organ Donors Australia or Batia or Soldier On. And all these, these are actually organizations creating a massive positive change in the world, but currently they're unable to capture that impact in a really authentic way. So we want to work with them to run letter campaigns where we reach out into the community that they're affecting and we run letter events where we invite people that they've affected to kind of articulate what Organ Donors Australia has meant to them or what Batia has meant to them or what you know, Doctors Without Borders has meant to them. And I think you can create something really powerful for the organization that could act as a content marketing strategy for them, but that it's not driven internally. So it's not the organizations telling the world how great they are. It's the world telling the, other, the rest of the world. And I think that's, so that's exciting. And I think from a fundraising perspective, lots of these organizations really or constantly in fundraising cycles to keep themselves afloat. Uh, lots of these non-for-profits, that, that, that job never ends. I think creating hard copy, high-quality books, and so the top 100 letters that they receive, I think could be a really powerful part of how they raise money. They could sell those books, they could gift those books. and So that's the kind of things that we're experimenting with now. And for the first time in, in the company's history, we just have total focus on solving these problems. You know, we, we've finished a fundraising cycle a couple of months ago and it's given us 12 months of operating finances where 
we can dig deep into these problems and and come up with solutions and it's just yeah it's super gratifying i love how you're evolving with the online platforms but then also bringing it back to the hard copy books and what our generations would be calling the old school way of looking and reading at material (laughs) that's a brilliant concept i mean the, the whole concept of letters is tremendously old school you know it's uh there's a whole generation of kids now who've never written or received a letter and you think about what a powerful role letters played has played throughout human history. I mean, it's just, it seems like a tragedy that we've, we've jumped so far to the other end of the spectrum where all our communication is one sentence or a few words or a couple of emojis. And there's something powerful about writing and a writing really still matters. Sometimes it's the only way to really work out what, what you actually think and why you think it. And the idea of letters is, it's tremendously old school, but it also gives us an opportunity to reimagine what a letter can be in 2017. So that's a whole other exciting angle. Now, your brother Dane is a partner in Creating Karma with you, and he's also a comedian. And I was absolutely wetting myself doing the research for this interview when I discovered some of his YouTube clips. I haven't had big belly laughs like that in a long time. But I wanted to ask you, Clyde, how has his personality helped you see a lighter side to your darker times? Oh, it's been an absolute joy working with Dane. You know, we kind of rub each other. I'm the older brother, he's the younger brother. But it's just highlighted how important it is to work with people that you really care about and who have similar values. And with Dane, you get someone who's fiercely intelligent and he can be quite philosophical and you know has a background in, in computer science but at the same time can just be really silly and fun and playful and it's made working life just so enjoyable for me and startups can be really hard they can be stressful long hours all those things and I know for Monish and I having that that sort of culture in our company where we take our work extremely seriously but we don't take ourselves seriously I think that's something that I've really appreciated in the last couple of years and something that I think has been fundamental to allowing us to get through the inevitable hurdles that you face as a startup and it's just something that I think is it's important to retain as you grow you know it's easy to do that as a relatively small team now to have that ethos but I think it's it's front of our minds that as we start to add team members and as Karma grows as a company that we don't lose that sense, that playfulness and that kind of just the the acknowledgement that, you know, we're all just primates trying to figure our way through life and do something that we think matters and it's there to be enjoyed and, and that's something that comes through every day, you know. We often laugh out loud. It's rare to go a day that we don't do that and you know, not every workplace is like that, and it, it's, it just takes strong leadership. You know, people think of leadership as being, you know, beat your chest, follow me. But I think leadership is actually often just bringing the right sort of mindset to whatever the challenge or the environment requires, and, and Dane does that extremely well. That's brilliant, actually, in thinking about that. A lot of top comedians in the world are actually quite intelligent, like what your brother Dane is, and I think that's what makes their comedy acts so much more funny because they bring realistic aspects to it, but in a light-hearted manner. And so I could only imagine those 
greatly enjoyable times, like you said, grinding it out in a startup capacity, having someone who is your brother, who is very intelligent and brings all the right aspects to that CEO role. And then at the same time, he can also bring that lighthearted manner to make sure you guys are enjoying those grinding moments. Exactly. Yeah, you hit the nail on the head there, Brett. I just wanted to sort of backtrack a little bit. Do you have any other tips or tools or strategies that you've learned and implemented to help combat what we spoke about before with the, the negative thought spirals? Yeah, I think... I know what a satisfying answer sounds like. It's just kind of this very specific thing. But for me, it really is a kind of convergence of lots of small things. You know, it's that, as I said before, none of the things that I do to to be happy and fulfilled and to be living a very meaningful life is particularly complicated. You know, it's it's pick work that you are deeply passionate about. Forget the money. It doesn't, it's totally meaningless provided your basic needs are met. And, you know, we, the founders of Comma put everything we have into this company, all our savings. Dane likes to say we've we built a company by combining my rugby savings and his debt. <laughs> but it's just because it, it's life's too short not to do the kind of work that you, you care deeply about. And that, that's a huge part of, I think, why I feel as grateful as, as, uh, as I do. You know, the work that I'm doing, if someone gave me a billion dollars today, I'd wake up tomorrow and I'd be doing the same work. I'd just be able to do it much faster. Um, so that's a huge part of it. And, uh, and I think people shouldn't be afraid to take risks, to quit jobs, to move on to the next thing, to, you know, to suffer a bit. That's all part of it. You know, it, it doesn't, I spent a long time as a professional athlete, and in hindsight, it was never the, the the perfect job for me. As much as I loved the experiences that I had and the relationships that I formed, I have no regrets about being a professional rugby player. The work that I'm doing now is just in perfect alignment with my values and, and what's interesting to me and what I'm passionate about in a way that no other job has been. And then it's all the other stuff that I've already touched on. Uh, exercise it's you know we've evolved over millions of years to exert ourselves every day in some capacity so if exercise every day and and do stuff that you love you know if you're not smiling at the end of whatever you're doing something's wrong i try and make sure i i don't beat myself up i train in a way that's about longevity and do stuff that i i find really interesting and stuff that really makes me feel like a novice again so put myself into challenges where I, I, I'm terrible or I suck at it and I have to learn a new skill. It's about eating good food. You know, it's, I don't know, Western diets are just so horrendous. It's just, in no way are they built around how we're meant to eat. So do some research, read, learn about how, and experiment because, again, there's a lot of, genetic diversity and what works is for one person from a diet perspective may not work for another but at least be willing to run that experiment and learn what works for you and just connect with lots of people have lots of interesting conversations read books read stuff that you don't agree with have lots of light-hearted arguments and some not so lighthearted arguments and just sink your teeth into life and there's, there's really nothing to be lost it sounds like from hearing you speak today that a big turning point for you has actually been acceptance and 
I've done a lot of work with acceptance and commitment therapy and as with many adversities, including ill mental health, we know we can't move forward from the situation until we accept that it's there, accept how it has affected us and for you, I imagine you learned and accepted that you can now actually be the best version of yourself because this has happened in your life. Not happened to you, but an experience you now have the opportunity to learn and grow from. And this is obviously why you are genuinely so passionate about karma with the true, deep, lived experience and understanding the power of human influence and especially gratitude to, to help us in life and move forward from these experiences. Yeah, I mean, I really can't put it any better than that, Brett. You know, that's it's that's an opportunity that's available to everyone, uh, accepting reality and recognizing that, you know, your life is a mystery that's going to unfold whether you make conscious decisions about which direction you want it to go or not. So it's worth dedicating the time to think about what kind of life you want and, and why and what matters, what really matters in life and and questioning whether what you're currently doing maps onto that. You know, it's something I find really interesting is that you can get 20 people in a room and ask them all what really matters, and what tends to come out of their mouths is very, very similar. People will say it's friends, it's family, it's experiences. Um, And then when you ask them how much of their day-to-day existence recognizes that truth, you'll find a wide variety of responses some people are, i think i think this is why that 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 regular daily practice of really connecting with what actually matters in life is is absolutely invaluable whenever we do that i think it, it changes the kind of day we're likely to lead and it's something i've tried to do and, and i know that you know the, the rest of the company does and it, it really filters through everything that you do when you when you really remind yourself consistently why am I doing this and why does it matter and and who matters and why do they matter and it's powerful. Absolutely. Being in alignment as you said or congruent and understanding your core values and making decisions on a daily basis in alignment with that. Now we've talked a lot about mental health today and you just mentioned before about exercise and eating right. People might refer to it as holistic health and I refer to it as optimal health. What have you learned since retiring from elite sport around the difference between being fit and being healthy? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, I think this is the, the kind of great irony is that you, know, you look at a lot of professional athletes from the outside, they appear as like paragons of health and fitness. But then when you're inside the bubble of sport, and you'll know this you know, through your work as a therapist, that a lot of these guys are tremendously unhealthy as a result of the kinds of jobs they're required to do. So I remember this, the first time I went back to play again, I went to have my first physio screening and I walked into the physio room and it, it kind of just hit me as a bit of a shock that there were a bunch of 20-something-year-old guys there, either with their leg in a brace or their arm in a cast or having had a shoulder recon or knee recon. And it, it, I'd been out of that world for you know, a couple of years. And to come back into it, it just reminded me, again, what professional sport often well, – a big part of it is putting your body through the grinder. I think most people have – a lot more opportunities to develop genuine health, like sustainable health and well-being than a lot of athletes do. You know, the, the tip of the sword in professional sport, in, in virtually any professional sport, particularly contact sports, 
is not a healthy environment for a human to be in. Well, it's not only a healthy environment, I should say. And, you know, my training now is really based around a respect for the finite lifespan of the body, you know, tendons, ligaments, joints, bones, they wear out and we get old and you are reminded of that truth when you're playing a professional contact sport because you finish your career and you have uh, a series of, in many cases, permanent injuries that are just a result of the kind of lifestyle you've lived. You know, I played professional sport for 12 years. I came out of high school straight into a professional program, never really had any other job. And your body takes a toll. So uh, I'm lucky. I, you know, I look at some of my former teammates, and, and there's a lot of guys in worse condition than me. But I try and train now and live in a way that is really respective of the body and of our health and well-being and, and try and do things that are challenging but not eroding. And this is always a fine balance that you walk because you do have to pay some price to enact any sort of physical change. But there's a difference between going for a 5K run on a Sunday, doing some hill sprints, lifting some weights, and smashing into 120-kilo guys every weekend, which was, I did every weekend for a very long time. So there's, there's a key difference between athletic performance-type fitness and health and well-being. Absolutely. It's it's so interesting after being in the high-performance sporting world and then seeing it from a different perspective. And I was an athlete myself and then I was a full-time therapist for years and then a full-time coach for the last six years. And for the last couple of years, I've been working with a health coach who's a functional medicine expert and also a functional neurology expert, actually. And that's why I've had him on the podcast because optimal health is very different to what a lot of us have grown up understanding and I'm actually I'm actually doing many more shorter factual topic based episodes with him on the podcast as we move forward because I'm passionate about helping people understand their optimal health better so it's awesome to hear your perspective from it after stepping away from high performance sport yeah and you know I don't want to help me agree with everything you said I don't want to beat up on there's we all play these trade-off games in life. You know, if you want to, if you want to achieve great things, you really do have to commit. I think as long as people entering into those environments understand the price they may have to pay, as long as they go in eyes wide open, I don't have a problem. But I think it's the the naivety that people have. You know, I'm all for people challenging themselves and pushing themselves and having these kind of edge niche human experiences that you can only achieve by by giving everything that you have and testing yourself beyond where you thought you could go, it's it's just being able to step back from those experiences and, and weigh up the pros and cons. That's important. Absolutely. It's a little bit like what you were referring to earlier around creating the awareness around your thought processes when you step into high performance sport or any environment where it could be the corporate environments you step in with the awareness of what you're about to put yourself through and what the price is you're going to pay and like you said with eyes wide open it's not like we're saying to here to people don't go and do high performance sport it's not healthy but we're just saying that the optimistic and holistic view of it all now Clyde I'm all about action and I ask all my guests this question to help Help myself and the listeners implement something helpful into their lives and would love to know what's your advice on what specific action our listeners can take today to become more impactful in their lives and in their communities. 
Well, look, I'm biased, but I, I have to say that writing karma letters has been one of the single best things I've ever done. And that it's, you know, and I've talked about the benefits throughout this podcast, but it's, it's a, it's a unique way to say thank you. It's a unique gift to give someone, and it's a, a gift not just to the recipient, but to yourself as the author. It's a, a practice, a unique way to practice gratitude. And it's, it's an important that we don't leave the words that really matter unsaid. So I would encourage people listening in to, to go to karma.wiki to sign up, to think about someone they're really grateful for, and to spend the time articulating why they're grateful for that person and to send that person a letter. And I'll vouch for that. I started off the chat talking about my experience as the writer, and I couldn't agree more that it's it's definitely worth people experiencing. Now, before we dive into the fast five questions, you talked about values there before, and one of my core values is giving, and I give all my guests on the podcast something for coming on to to say thank you and Clyde I want to give you a connection I read a brilliant article recently titled the gift we love to receive but forget to give and it went on to say that there's one form of giving that involves few costs while offering dramatic benefits to the people around us. It's the single best way to help someone fall in love and the most common way that people find a job. It's also the reason that the Beatles and the iPhone came to exist and it's an introduction. Yeah, wow. So the introduction that I want to give you, Clyde, is actually to two former legends that I've had on this podcast and that is... Dr. Kerry Howes, who I know you've listened to that episode uh, on on gratitude, and also to one of the humblest, strongest humans I know, who is Kath Cashel, because of the work she's doing with the Kindness Factory, and just seeing what you've created with Karma and what these wonderful ladies are doing, I know you will all leverage some sort of, uh, I don't know, I can just see it, it's, it'll be There'll be powerful ways of abundantly awesome results for society just coming from those connections. Oh, thank you, Brett. I really look forward to to being intro to those people. I, I've listened to Kerry and I'll take the time to listen to the other podcasts too because you know, the, the kinds of guests that you tend to have completely overlap with, with what we were trying to do. So, yeah, I really appreciate that. It, it excites me. I know you're a well-connected human already due to the circles that you've been in, but I just feel like this could be something quite special and some seeds planted with you guys all heading in the same trajectory. It's awesome. Now, two-part question, where can our listeners learn more about you? So uh, social media in the positive way or the website, and how can I and the listeners help you on your journey? Well, the best way to learn about me would be to read the letters that I've received and written on karma. And something we didn't really talk about, but it's you get a, a very unique insight into someone through the letters they've received because you're you're seeing them through the lens of the people that know them best. And it's just a it's an insight into them that they're not creating or curating in the way that most other social media profiles are so that's that if you want to know who i am read read the letters i've received and written on karma 
And what was the other question? How can we help you on your journey? The simplest answer to that is to pay attention to what matters in your life and to express that on our platform where and if appropriate. You know, I think the thing that's going to drive karma success is to have lots of good people participate on on the website through letters, through comments, so that I would appreciate that deeply if people signed up, wrote a letter, or even just showed up and read letters and spent time on the site. And uh, a lot of value can be extracted, not just from writing content, but just reading letters and and learning more about what karma stands for and, and reaching out if we can help. You know, one of the things that we've been doing is organizing these letter events for unsung heroes in the community. So we all know the person in the workplace or the, the, the sporting club or the corporate organization that is kind of behind the scenes doing really important stuff and sometimes doesn't get the credit they deserve. And we've been running letter events to identify these people and then surprise them on a birthday or a retirement or farewell of some sort. Or So that's something that your listeners are interested in doing. Do reach out to me. My email address is Clyde at karma.wiki. Um, we'd love to work with you. Absolutely. I couldn't recommend it highly enough. And I'll link the karma.wiki website in the show notes. I'm also going to link some of the letters that you referred to that people have written about you because I did read a lot of those in my research for our chat today. And it, like you said, it's an awesome way to see someone and their life through the lens of someone else. So I'll I'll definitely link those up. Now, the fast five questions, don't give yourself too much time to think about it. Just let it roll off the tongue and let it flow and see what happens. Are we good? Go for it. Let's do it. Okay. What's one habit you wish you could change? Bad sleep. What makes you feel absolutely pumped and exhilarated and energized? My work and the people I work with. Brilliant. Have you ever washed a dog? Oh, many times. <laughs> Excellent. What's the best piece of advice you've ever received? Do what you love. And what are you most grateful for in your life right now? People and relationships and, and just the opportunity to develop more of those. Clyde, you're a legend. You are living proof of how we can take the worst situations in our life, shift our mindsets, and make them the best opportunities in our life. Keep shining your grateful and impactful light to the world, my man. Thank you so much, Brad. We'll talk soon, buddy. Wow. That was powerful. We often hear about sports people suffering with mental health issues these days, so to talk to Clyde so openly about this firsthand and hear how his depression has actually fueled his purpose to leave a proud legacy is super inspiring. Another prime example of collateral beauty like what I spoke about in episode 30. If you know someone who is suffering from mental illness or has a lived experience, and you think that this chat and Clyde's story could provide them with some inspiration, tools and light to help them shine their light again, please share this episode around. As I've said many times before, different podcasts can be great coaching tools for people in so many different ways. They truly can expose a rabbit hole of opportunities and aha moments for us. You would have heard me mention many times and you'll understand that this is a major reason why I actually started recording this podcast 
because I was addicted to listening to them for a couple of years and they truly have reshaped my personal and professional development and helped me tap into my inner excellence. Now, I can't recommend highly enough to jump onto the Karma site. That's K-A-R-M-A dot W-I-K-I and start experiencing this platform. And since recording this episode, I've utilized the Karma site again to do a birthday letter and fun video for my dad and he loved it. But also, once again, I loved the experience of being the writer of the letter. Think about your act of kindness like what Kath Cashel teaches. Actually, think about it this way. You can use Clyde's Karma platform to write a letter connecting two people that you believe can enhance each other's lives. That way you're experiencing the power of the Karma community firsthand like I have. You're doing an act of kindness that you can register at thekindnessfactory.com to help Kath and her community reach the 1 million acts of kindness they're striving for. And you can enjoy the ride on the gratitude cyclone and feel the physiological benefits that Dr. Kerry Howes affirmed with us. (laughs) There's a great all-in-one experience that truly exemplifies what I'm referring to in regards to the ripple effects of connecting and introducing people. And in line with this feeling, you heard my gift to Clyde of connecting him with Kath Cashel and Dr. Kerry Howes. I made that connection via email straight after recording with Clyde and I've chatted with him since then and he's excitedly told me that he and Kerry connected and they're both on the same page and are now looking at what they can do in collaboration to help this gratitude space prosper even more. See, Kerry sees karma as a platform that actually allows people to act gratefully and not just express gratitude. Remember, the power of gratitude is to act it, make it a habit. That's how it really causes those deeper, long-lasting physiological benefits. Dr. Kerry and Clyde both spoke about it on their episodes, and that's a known fact from the studies around the world, including Kerry's. And I guess that's why each time I've used karma, I've enjoyed the experience so much because it's an action of gratitude. And remember what Dean Carey taught us in episode 15. Don't wait for the tsunami in your life before you become the best version of yourself. If you want to join those in this community that are taking their lives to the next level and investing into optimal living, jump on to yourlifeofimpact.com forward slash coaching, send me an email and let's start your epic journey of development. And as always, remember, this is your life journey, your life of impact.